Well, I asked Tanya, knowing she was going to be singing this morning, it kind of worked out good, and our message and where it's gone, I said to her, you know, would you be willing to stay on stage to just share a little bit as kind of a part of the introduction to my message? And um, kind of talked about it a little bit, and she said, yeah, I think I could do that. So that's why she's here. Uh, so thank you so much for being here uh, and being willing to do this with me. You're welcome. Uh, my experience in life, Tanya and I, as we grew up, we grew up in very, very different homes. Tanya's home uh, experienced divorce. She experienced um, somewhat of an abusive relationship from her mother. Uh, she's experienced things that I did not understand. I came from a home where basically my experiences in life left me no question at all understanding the fact that I was loved and accepted. I felt that. I knew that. Intuitively, I had a keen grasp of that. Matter of fact, probably the greatest way I, I, as we were talking about this this week, the greatest way to put it is I kind of grew up thinking that I had a lot to offer in areas where I was gifted just a little bit. Tanya, on the other hand, and her experiences in life, I think she grew up with a kind of a question mark hanging in the air of, am I loved and am I accepted? And she, because of that, she kind of approached life with not thinking she had a whole lot to offer in areas where she truly was greatly gifted. As we kind of watch that and unpack that unfold, I think one of probably the greatest examples of me is my dad. I played baseball. Now, a lot of you don't know that because I haven't shared a lot because baseball is not a real passion of mine, and I'm not really that gifted at the sport of baseball. The hand-eye coordination, all the stuff that it takes to hit the ball, I was a catcher, and I, I'll be honest, I'm a real wuss. And having some of those, I got, grew up in baseball, some of those fastballs foul-tipped and hitting me, I just was not game to that. I said, you know what, I don't need to be a part of that. But I'll never forget, though, in baseball, I played it, I gave it my all, and my dad was always there to support me. Always. I don't think he ever missed one of my baseball games. And on the drive home, as he'd take me home as we get in the car, I will never forget, he, I don't think once he criticized me. He never got down on the way I played. If I made a mistake, he would encourage me. He would constantly use an opportunity to talk about how I'm getting better and how I could continue to learn, and he'd give me pointers. And he never pressured me to excel, but he was always there to support me if I wanted to excel. But I wasn't that gifted in baseball, but I really thought I was because I had a dad behind me that loved me and supported me. I think a lot of that really developed in me, built confidence. I had a spirit of I can do it just generally in life, and I'll work hard to do it. Tanya, one of her stories that um, she actually asked me to share this part is Tanya is incredibly gifted at singing. Some of we just witnessed that. I appreciate to death her vocal talent. There are vocal cords in there that I'm not sure I could even come close to. My body just was not put together like that. God did not gift me, and things run and hide when I sing. Tanya's highly gifted there, though. I don't. (laughs) But the thing that's interesting, when Tanya got off to college, um, she has a story where she went. She had to sign up for some extracurricular um, uh, different clubs and activities, And one of them was a choir, kind of an ensemble group, a music group. And she was there with her parents, and she tells the story where she was going to sign up for this. And uh, she got the message given back to her as, oh, Tanya, I don't think that would be a good idea to do. So much so that she went off to then, she finished that schooling and went off to a school in Tennessee to finish her bachelor's degree, where she was offered a full-ride scholarship for music. And again, she turned it down, not thinking and not sure if she was truly gifted in music. So as we kind of unpack that, one of the things that uh, we're going to kind of head this morning, we're talking about home lives, because I think we're going to get into the spiritual aspect of this. We cannot underestimate the power of a parent's love. And I know I did. I grew up taking it for granted. It just, oh well. We can't underestimate that. I've come to realize that I am, Adam Nagel, is who he is because of a parent's love. They poured into me. I never, the, the never questioning whether I was loved was one of the greatest gifts my parents could have ever given me. And they gave it to me very, very well. Now, this reality really opened up to me when Tanya and I got married. And um, when I got married, we began to realize I lived from a place of healthy risk I live from a place of if I set my heart to it, I could do it. I live from a place of the sky was the limit. I live from a place of kind of healthy buoyancy. If I fail, oh well, I'll bounce back. Um, and I kind of took life on with a hope and an optimism. When we got married, though, I realized that that's not how everyone approaches life. 
Um, so I asked Tanya to come and kind of share just maybe she could comment on some of what I just shared uh, and kind of share how she approached life coming from a home where the question mark hung in the air of am I loved and am I accepted? Um, yeah, that's, that's true. I did have a little bit of a question mark. And um, I, I want to say too quickly, we haven't practiced this, but I just want to say I realize no parent is perfect, but that's a whole nother talk. So without sounding like... Um, it's it's a whole nother subject. Can I leave it at that? Um, but yeah, when we got married, I realized that not everyone has the big question mark like I did. And he just seemed so confident that everything was going to work out all the time. And, and I don't mean to an unrealistic point. I don't mean that. I'm just saying I, like when we got married, I read tons and tons of marriage books because I know nothing about being a wife and, and not so much what if I fail, but just that feeling of I know nothing and this won't go well if I don't know anything. And same with having kids. I read tons and tons of books because I just always had that feeling like I won't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. And um, I remember specifically when we only been married maybe a couple years and we were living in an apartment in Lidditz. And Adam just looks at me. I must have been telling him a story of something that happened at work or whatever. I don't remember now. And he just looked at me and he said, I figured it out. I finally understand what you're doing. And I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, you are always sizing people up to see if they are safe. And I was like, yeah, are you? <laughs> but that was sort of the first step into the journey of me realizing that we looked at life totally differently. Yeah, and I think even as we... Um you know, Tanya kind of saw me as bold, confident. I think at times she thought arrogant, uh, and maybe I was at times. <laughs> uh, but even as how we came out of Charlotte, uh, those of you that don't know, we, Tanya and I stepped into Charlotte about four, four and a half years ago now to plan a church, a big dream, a big venture, and it failed terribly. Uh, it was a personally a hard time for us emotionally. Our marriage barely held together by a, by a thread, and we came out of that hurting. And even through that experience... Um, Again, I kind of, after three months, I hurt, I suffered, I had a hard time, I got into counseling, but a few months into it, I'm like, you know what, we're going to bounce back, this is okay, it's, it's going to all be okay. Tanya, on the other hand, I don't know if you want to express you. Um, I, I think that for me was, in my adult life, was just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. I just kind of learned the hard way at 18 when I left home that I really wasn't ready to face the world. So I felt like I was working extra hard to catch up to where everybody else was at, only to have all the pressures of real life drop down on my head, and I really couldn't handle it. And I feel like at that point I had relatively done okay and been able to meet the demands of reality, and then at that point I just really felt like I was in over my head. But beyond feeling like the demands were over my head, I also, for the first time in my life, really truly doubted if God would take care of me. And I, I do think... I, do, I think, again, this is another talk, but I think that was God's journey for me. And it, in his way, he heals that and makes that a beautiful thing. But that's not really the point of our talk today. But um, I think I would have handled it a little differently. And I think my relationship with the Lord would have been different in different areas had I had the experience in life of knowing that love really can be counted on. One of the things I asked Tanya to do is, and if you do this now, you know, just kind of wrap this up. I asked her to just maybe think of one example, and she shared one this week that I thought would be really good, I think, to sum this up, a real good practical example of how, how your home, that question mark hanging over, deeply impacted you, not only in your teenage years, but growing. Would you, would you mind sharing that? Well, when he told me what he was going to talk about, I instantly had a story, and it's certainly not the only story, but it's one that... <clears throat> At the ripe old age of 36, I now look back on and say, I think that was the start of when I started to realize I was doing things differently because of how I felt on the inside. But I was um, 15, and I had taken a job as a hostess at a local restaurant. It was a family restaurant. It was supposed to be a really good place to work and all this kind of thing. And about a year or two into it, um, I start to realize that the, the people I work for really are not very nice people. And um, my boss was, he sexually harassed me and was just not nice to me at all. And it wasn't just me, it was other people too, but they were a lot older than I was, most of them. And instead of me taking that situation in 
and processing it and saying, well, maybe I should remove myself from this unhealthy working situation. I just instinctively thought, well, I'm just going to have to show him that I really am a good waitress and I can pull my weight. So I, I pretty much let him demean me and yell at me in front of customers and treat me similarly, similarly to how I was treated at home. I didn't really see any difference. But what happened was by the time I was 18 and graduated from high school and moved away and went to college, I realized that what I always wanted to study my whole life, ever since I can remember, I had always wanted to be a nurse, always. And after taking that job and moving away, I didn't go to school to be a nurse. Um, I'm thankful for the degree I have, but I just lost confidence. I felt like I would kill somebody. And um, I just didn't approach the, um, the job situation in a healthy way. And that kind of set a precedence for making decisions that were safe in my adulthood because what if I fail? I'm not sure I can make it. What if I don't have the stuff it takes? And on and on it goes. So that was kind of the first decision of many where I wasn't living in reality and, and didn't know how to step up either. It's interesting. As, as we're going to kind of transition to God's love, uh, I think it compares to homes so well. When you study scientific research and studies that look at homes and emotional health in children growing up, um, love compels us to live well. As we look at a home so often, so much of our, our dysfunction in society, if you want to call it that, our hurts, our pains, the struggles that children have, a lot of studies will point back to the reality that they're not coming from a place of deep, radical love, a place where mom and dad are even together. We have a lot of homes where that is splintered and fallen apart, and there's, there's that hurt and that pain. And it impacts. Understanding you are loved deeply impacts the fiber of our emotional makeup and how we're put together. Now, we're going to transition that, and we're going to talk about how that same principle drives us spiritually. That same principle, I think, is really what aids us in our journey with God. And it's so crucial this morning that we cannot underestimate. And many of us do this. I do this. It's one of my biggest battles in my spiritual journey. We cannot underestimate the power of God's love. Now, as we say all this, um, God's love was still working in Tanya's life. You know, we, it's not a hopeless story. <laughs> Just because she didn't get love at home doesn't mean it's all over and every, it's a big failed misery mess and she's going to go nowhere. God's love was still working. God was still very real. God still used Sunday school teachers and other people in her life to help shepherd and guide her and bring her to the understanding that he was radically in love with her, even though he didn't, she didn't pull that from her home. But no matter where you're at this morning, whether you come from that good home come from that dark home or maybe somewhere in between, the point I want to kind of transition to is understanding how much God loves us. And that is the foundation and the root that compels us to live boldly and confidently for him. If we do not understand and embrace and comprehend his radical love for us, we will continue to struggle in our spiritual journey and never quite attain that life, that confidence, that boldness in life that he desires for us to live. So the heart this morning is to really go there and to talk about that. To do that, I actually want to pray, um, open us up in prayer, and I want to pray Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 and 19. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to pray it. I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a church, a church called Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus. The book is Ephesians, named after the city and the church there in that city. That was a church that knew this book extremely well. They were well-grounded. They knew the truths of God. They understood who he was. But later, as we see in the book of Revelation, when that church is described, it is said they lost their first love. It was a church that had it up here very well. They took it on and they knew it well. But Paul's prayer, the writer of this book, was prayer was, I want you to understand how much God loves you, how deep and wide his love is. And that was his heart and his prayer for that church. That's my heart and prayer this morning as a pastor, is that we leave here grasping deeply how much God loves us. So I'm going to pray for us now, and then we'll jump into First uh, John. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, I pray that out of your glorious riches, you may strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that each of us being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide, 
wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love, God, we pray that we know this love and know it well, this love that surpasses knowledge, that ultimately, God, we may leave here and be filled to the measure of the fullness of you. And God, as Paul writes those words that we just prayed, God, it's your love that opens the door to your, Jesus' love, it opens the door to your fullness, your power, your strength. It's your, that love poured out through the person of Jesus that gives us the victory in our spiritual walk. God, so may we embrace that this morning. May we understand it. May we, I think to some degree, we all struggle with the love of God. But may you challenge our hearts afresh and anew to see you as a God who loves and loves deeply. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. If you turn with me in the book, in your Bibles, to 1 John chapter 2. My wife slept off, and she's actually got to head home to some sick kids. We had a tricky morning this morning. <laughs> uh, one of, we thought we got over it. Well, another one woke up this morning. Now he was sick. Always on Sunday morning. Not quite sure why that is. But, so they're out watching a movie. I can see it now out in the van in the, in the carport there. So, <laughs> um, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John, if you're not familiar with your Bibles, is going to be towards the back of your Bible. If you head back there, flip a few books front, you're going to find the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. Now, we've been in the book of 1 John. We're, we're there because John writes this book from a pastoral heart. He says, I want you to know in chapter 5, you can know for certain what it means to be a Christian. You can know for certain that you, when you die, you will spend eternity with the Father in heaven. And he writes to give us this calm assurance, this boldness, this confidence. So all the way through the book, he sets up what I like to call these tests of assurance. This ability for me to step back and read through and study this and say, you know what? I can know for sure that I am going to be with God in heaven. A powerful book. So we're, here we are in chapter 2. We're going to actually, at the end of chapter 2, we're going to be moving into chapter 3. Last week, we kind of talked about the reality that we live in a day and age where there are a lot of people that say I'm a Christian, a lot of people that say, yeah, I know God, I follow him, but they're really miles from him. And we talked about then the, the reality of the Holy Spirit, how God, those who have truly embraced Jesus Christ, God has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit to live well. So now he's going to continue um, through this thought. And the thought that kind of picked up there was remain, stay strong strong to the end. Now, chapter two, there at the end, verse 28, it says this, and now dear children continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Right away, coming back to verse 28, you see this continue. Some of your versions may have the word remain. It's the thought that kind of carries through um, through the verses we just looked at. But he talks about this confidence, this boldness. The reality is every one of us is going to stand before God. Every single one of us. No exceptions. And we're all going to stand there. And the cool thing is, as John talks about this, there's this confidence. And we're going to stand before God. And we're going to look at that more in this chapter, in chapter 3. Confidence, the word itself, captures uh, freedom of speech. It captures the thought of boldness, courage. It captures the thought of, of outspoken. So John is saying, I want you to understand that if you remain, if you stay true, if you abide in me, as some of your translations actually see that word pop up, as you stay true with me, you're going to stand before God one day and you can be bold and confident with your speech. Not shy away, not shrink back, not hide, but you can stand before God with boldness and confidence. The thing that's interesting to me, um, some of your versions will actually have, have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame. You know, it's, I hear a lot of people say there's going to be no tears in heaven. And I question people when they say that. Why do you say that? Because I don't see that direct passage in scripture where it says there will be no tears in heaven. There's reference to no sickness. There's reference to no suffering. But I firmly believe that there is going to be tears in heaven. And it's going to come when we all stand before Jesus Christ, our judge. I think 1 Corinthians paints that picture very well. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we look at it this week. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 to 15. says that we're all going to stand before God. We're all going to stand and we're going to answer to what we, foundation we built our lives on. And he says that you have the foundation of Jesus and we want our lives rooted and grounded in him and build everything up on him. But he says, and, and Paul says, he writes 1 Corinthians, he says some of you are going to stand there before God and he's going to measure you. And he's going to just destroy everything that's not built on that solid foundation. 
And then he says, this is, a, this is a scary verse. He says, and some of you will escape as though barely coming through the flames. I think, we're gonna, I think there is no doubt when we stand before God and he reveals and opens up and peels us back like in kind of the layers of the onion. And he gets into the core and he says, hey, what have you done with your life? Look at what I've given you. Look at the opportunity you've, and, and that you've wasted and squandered. I believe with all my heart, there's going to be deep sorrow and deep pain at that moment in heaven. And Paul and, and John says here in the first John, you can, I want you to know, I want you to be assured that you can stand before God with freedom of speech. You can know for certain here in this life, you don't need to wait till that life. You can know for certain in this life that when you stand before him, and we're going to see here in a minute, see him face to face, you can speak out boldly and confidently. That's the heart of John and what he, what he runs at here. It's kind of like the moment in marriage. I think the standing before Jesus, we talked about last week, that the Christian life isn't this one-time decision, but it's this, this continuing pursuit, this constant love, me chasing after my wife and my bride and my sweetie. I'm constantly pursuing her. It's kind of like I think that moment in heaven is going to be like that moment that, that some spouses experience when you, your spouse, you, you think it's going along pretty good. You know, yeah, we could tweak this or tweak that. But your spouse sits you down and says, you know what, honey, I just don't think I love you. Or maybe they sit down and say to you, I don't feel that close to you. When all along you thought it was fine. You thought it was hunky-dory. And as they begin to talk, and, and as some of you have been there, I've been there at times where Tiny's had to sit down and share hard things with me that I had no concept of. And you start to feel that pain and that heartache and that realization that this isn't what I wanted when I set out. I want to be bold and confident with my spouse. Not shrink back in shame and hide because of the emotional pain. Now, it talks about verse 29, if you look at it, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone, look at this, God's righteous, we know that. If you know, the word know is, it talks about, that word is, a, is to perceive an absolute truth with my head. No. The second no in this, in this is a completely different Greek word. He uses two different words here. If you know, if you have an intellectual knowledge that he is right, you know absolutely that he is righteous, you know. The second no is you experience. It's an experiential knowledge. I, I embrace it. I experience it. I feel it. You know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. You claim to be a Christ follower. You claim to love God. You claim to walk with him. Your life is going to reveal it in the fact that you look like him. Chris talked about that in his message a few weeks ago from the early parts of chapter 2. Now, the question becomes how. How do I do this well? And that's where he's going to go. Chapter 3, verse 1. If you want a verse to memorize and you don't have this one locked away, this is a powerful verse. This is a must lock away in your inner chambers of your heart. This is a verse to hold on to, to cling to. And I think it's John's way of saying, I am going to motivate you. I want you to see how to remain. I want you to know what it means to walk with him. And here it comes. And he lays it out boldly and clearly. Chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. See the exclamation point there in your English Bibles? This verse is filled with passion and emotion. John just spills this out. The reason the world, and this is an interesting thing we're going to talk about, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Powerful verse. Powerful verse. John just spills this out. He, it's, it's filled the, in the language, filled with exuberance, excitement, amazement, and wonder. He's blown away at the love that God has for us. Now, I think it's a lot like Romans 5.8. I think it's going to be up on the screen for you. Romans 5.8 talks about this love. Some of you have this one memorized. It says, but God demonstrated his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This verse, I think, captures the heart of that love. See, I think some of us, when we approach love, I think we miss the reality of what this verse means. I think some of us approach love as though it's kind of like a child at a cancer hospital waiting for treatment. Or a child down at maybe the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia waiting for a kidney transplant. It's moving, it's emotional, it's compelling, it's wow, I mean, what... The innocence of a child, the pure-hearted nature of a child, it compels us. We look at kids with, with this wide-eyed wonder, and who wouldn't, if they could, step in and help and save that child? But that's not what this love is. 
This love, I think, captures the picture. The picture that would better describe this love is stepping into death row. An inmate who is locked up for life, waiting for the lethal injection because he's murdered and raped and tortured. He's alienated and isolated himself from society because his heart is dark and ugly. That is the heart of this verse. While we were yet sinners, sinners is a separation from God. All sin pulls us apart from him. Sin cannot enter the presence of God. We're sinners. God sees a problem. He steps in on death row to say, you know what? I want to help you. I want to give you the resources necessary so that you can live well. Because I love you. I am for you. I am going to do what it takes to bring you life. Now, I think the second phrase that John uses... I think really captures it. Before we get there, um, there's some other verses up on the screen. Romans 8.1. Here's what Jesus has done. Romans 8.1, we've talked about this a while back. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus steps in, Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. We, those of us who embrace, say, yes, I'm a sinner. I embrace Jesus. We can go to the bank that there is now no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, though, continues with something very interesting and very profound that John keys on in chapter 3. It continues in verse 12. It says this, therefore, because there's no condemnation, because of what Jesus has done for you, and he, Paul lays all that out. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation We must do this, he says. But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the spirit of God are, here, catch this word, are sons of God. John talked about the the spirit of God being given to us. Paul talks about it. You have the spirit of God. He's given to us to seal us, to bring us into God's family. You're a son of God. Romans chapter 8 goes on. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. This is a crucial thought. You're not a slave. You're a child. You don't work for God. You don't get whipped and beat when you go wrong. You're a child. You're in his family. If you believe in Jesus, this is what John is driving at. You hold on to Jesus Christ. You believe in him, that he has died for you. You are in his family. This goes on to say, it says, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The word can literally mean daddy. We can cry out daddy. The passage goes on, verse 16. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Then the whole section wraps up verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. You're not a slave. I'm going to give you an inheritance. We're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. Powerful thought. God's love. It's radical. It's huge. It's deep. It's mind-blowing. Now, here's, look at this phrase, though. John slips this in, and, and I puzzle with this and wonder, why does this, he just is blown away by the love of God, and then all of a sudden this phrase, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. What does that have to do with the love of God? As I puzzled on that and thought about that this week, here's what I, come to, I think I've come to realize. I think what John is getting at is the world doesn't know the love of God because the world doesn't understand love, Period. We got love all mixed up. I have love mixed up. I think the world's definition of love is I am worthy of love. Make much of me. I think we look at it as if I'm going to love my wife, I'm going to make a big deal about her. And sure, am I going to make a big deal about my wife because I love her? Yeah. Am I going to be all for her and help her and serve her? No doubt. But I think that the world kind of takes on this love is make much of me and I will feel loved. If you don't make much of me, if you don't come pat me on the back and tell me what a great pastor I am and tell me how wonderful this was or how great that was, I don't feel loved. That's how we define love. Make a whole big deal about me. Or we define it of I am really worthy of love. I'm noble. I am do great things for my wife. I do great things for you. So I am worthy of that praise. And we, we heap this attention on me. It's always about me. And so therefore, if you're going to love me, you're going to make a big deal about me. Or I'm worthy of having a big deal made about. So of course, your love for me is natural. I think that's kind of how the world approaches this. But God's love does not work that way. I think the world has a hard time getting their head around this. 
I think that's one of the reasons John slips this in. The world doesn't know this. John chapter 3, if you look at it and read it this week, powerful chapter. It's where we get chapter 3, verse 16. You see it posted at sporting events. For God so what? What did he do to the world? Love the world. God so loved the world. You continue reading in the very next phrase in, in verse 17 is Jesus, God, came into this world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. He came, as we talked in Romans 5, 8, he came because we're sinners. He came because he said, I am for you. And I, I'm not asking you to get all cleaned up to come to me. I'm coming to clean you up. I'm coming to make you healthy. I'm coming to all that that you see that makes you unworthy. I'm coming to give you the tools necessary to be worthy. And what he did is he shined a light in on our heart and in on our darkness. Because the chapter continues and it goes on to talk about the world. It says something very interesting about the world. It says of the world and those who don't embrace Jesus, the world hates or loves darkness. So they hide. They hide from God. Here this free radical love is. And all God's saying is I'm here to shine the light on you. Because I love you. But the world has love all mixed up. We're, we're busy trying to defend myself, make myself look okay, justify myself. I am worthy of love. And we approach God this way. So what his light, yeah, God, come on, I'm worthy of love. God's love speaks reality and truth to us. He shines the light in our deepest, darkest places. And he says, I see it. And it's because it's there that I have come. Because you can't do anything about it. You need me. But that scares a lot of us because we define love as, I'm worthy of love. And when that light shines in there, we get defensive. We justify. We pull back and we hide from God. We feel condemned. We feel judged. And we shut ourselves off from his love. His love is radically all about reality. And it upends this world of self-justification. I think that's what John is getting at. He's saying, God loves you so much. You can call him dad. He's adopted you. We've got a lot of adopted families here. Families that have adopted are adopting. We get that concept physically, but I think sometimes spiritually we miss it. You, if you've embraced Jesus, you're loved by him. You're in his family. He shined the light on your heart and you don't need to run and hide. That secret, that pain, that heartache, that sin, that struggle. He's shining it there to say, I love you in spite of that and because of that. And I'm coming to offer you what it takes to live well. Now, I want to make one note. I've shared, been open with you guys before. And if you're new to the church, I'll share it with you. My greatest spiritual struggle hands down. And it's in, I wish Tanya was here. It impacted our marriage in, in some very profound ways. I had a hard time coming from that place of God loves me. I worked and I performed hard for that love. It's always been hard. One of the things that, that through some mentors, some wise biblical teachers, and even my counselor, he talked to me about this. He said, Adam, you need to understand something. There's a phrase that you have locked away in your head that's shipwrecking you. And I want to just share, this is for a whole other message, but at least want to kind of get your mind, some of you thinking down this road to maybe give you some hope and some help on this. They share with me, you're shipwrecking yourself with the word unconditional love. I said, what do you mean? God's love is unconditional. And they'd look at me and say, is it? Is that the term the Bible uses for God's love? The one guy said, I challenge Adam, go away, come back next week and we'll talk. Find for me one verse in this book that uses the word associated with his love as being unconditional. I came back the following weeks and I showed him all the concepts. He says, yes, Adam, no doubt. (laughs) You are saved by grace. It's a free gift. It's lavished on you. You do nothing to earn it. But I'm talking about God's daily, continual love for you. Is it unconditional? And I struggled. I thought, he goes, see, you're trying to tell yourself it is, but in your heart, you know that it's not. The word that the biblical writers use over and over and over associated with God's love is not unconditional. It's unfailing. You say, what's the the difference? Again, for a whole other message, I want to show you a couple verses. 
Psalm 21, verse 7 is the first one you're going to see. I'm just going to read through some of these. Maybe you can write them down and look at them this week. Just read through the Psalms and you'll see this show up. For the king trusts in the Lord through the unfailing love of the Most High. He will not be shaken. So the king won't be shaken because of God's unfailing love. Psalm 36, 7. How priceless is your what? Unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. Unfailing love. The next one. That's Psalm 51. Now, this one's a powerful one because this one comes. We have a whole intro to the chapter there, too. I'll skip through that. It tells you who wrote it. Um, hold on. Back up one second. Let's write down there, right about the middle. It talks about, um, have mercy on me, O God. This is David screaming out and crying out. As you see it right there. The NIV Bible has it. It's after David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had a man murdered. He lied. He Terrible acts. He cries out to God about a year after all this takes place. Someone comes and confronts him. He pens these words. Very first thing out of his mouth. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your, not unconditional love, but your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Powerful verse. And then the final one look at is Psalm 62, verse 12. It says, and that you, O Lord, are loving. And in some translations, you actually see your, your unfailing love. Surely you will be rewarded, each person, according to what he has done. This is amazing. Some of your older versions of the NIV, some of your King James, some of your other, you actually see the word, and that you, O Lord, are loving. And some of you see the word, your love is unfailing. You'll actually see there. And then the very next sentence, surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. So I ask you, God's love, we, we throw this one around. Oh, it's all unconditional. We just, no, it's not. Now, do I, yes, in some ways it is. I want to be clear with that. In some ways, yes, Jesus has died. He's offered us a free gift. I do nothing to merit salvation. I walk into heaven because of what he has done. But my continued daily walk with him, the word the biblical writers use is my love is unfailing. I think the reason that is is because God knows, the biblical writers know, you and I fail continually. And when we fail, we feel condemned, we feel judged, we have this shame that mounts in us. And the biblical writers want us to know, yeah, you're going to stand accountable to God. But please know that his love is unfailing. It's bigger and wider and broader than any of your mistakes. Now come back to 1 John chapter 3. So the love of God is captured in now. Chapter, verse 2. Verse 2 and 3. Powerful verses. Verse 2 says this. Dear friends. Again, you see, I hope you pick up all throughout this book, John's heart for his readers. His heart for those who are hearing this message. He has a pastor's heart. Dear friends. He's compassionate for these people. Now we are children of God. There it is again. You're a child of God. You're in his family, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. God's coming back. If he doesn't come back, you're going to go join him. One way or another, you're going to see him. And we don't know. This is cool. John says we don't know what it's going to be like in heaven. You don't know what you're going to look like, but in some way you're going to be like him. And because you can see that hope, our vision, our, our, what we see and what we look forward to shapes our today, how we live. This is a business principle. I think it's also a spiritual principle. Our vision shapes what we do today. It's a powerful thought. Now I think about this. I think about what he says about heaven. I think he unpacks this. We don't know fully what it's going to be like. Scriptures are not crystal clear. Scripture spends more time helping us understand who we are here today on this earth and what the kingdom of God looks like and what it looks like to live it out well here. There is information throughout the pages that you're going to find little details about heaven and about what it looks like in the pearly gates and the streets of gold. And you'll see the word mansion pop up and you see all kinds of stuff that, that shows, that gives us glimpses of what heaven really going to be like. But there are more questions about heaven than what there are answers. And I think John hits it here. I mean, I think of some of them. <laughs> Maybe you've asked these. How are Tanya and I going to interact in heaven? What's Tanya going to be to me in heaven? Jesus says we don't give and take and receive in marriage. Does that mean I'm not going to... What's this relationship going to be like in heaven? 
What kind of relationship do I have with you in heaven? What kind of relationship do I have with friends? And I mean, how does, am I going to be able to look back and talk with Adam and Eve? And what's, what's all this going to be like? I think of other questions I have is, um, I've had is, is my dead dog, Reuben. I had a great Dane, 200 pound, great Dane growing up, loved him to death. Is he going to be in heaven with me? Where do dogs go when they die? Do they go to heaven? Are they in heaven? Is my dog going to be there to, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, some other questions I've had that you may, am I going to be able to fly? I think sometimes I have this picture of heaven as I'm going to have wings or at least I'm going to be some kind of spirit being where I'm going to be able to float around and go from cloud to cloud and play my harp and all the other fun little imagery we see of heaven. But am I, how am I going to move around? What's it going to be like? Will I, here's one I've asked, are we ever going to revert to a perfect age? Okay, so some people die when they're 80, some people die when they're eight. So what are they going to look like in heaven? How about babies that pass away? Is God going to push them forward? How about those with handicaps and some of the physical things that you see here in this earth? What, what happens with them when they get to heaven? So I've all, and probably the one, I'll be honest, I'll be very honest, very just gut level real. The one I probably wonder the most is, are we going to have sex in heaven? It's a fair question, right? It's a wonderful gift God's given us here in this earth. The Bible doesn't say a lot about it, but I wonder what's the physical relationship between people going to be in heaven? So as I think about that, John says, you know, we don't know, but the one thing that we do know for sure is that when we get there in some capacity, we are going to be like Jesus in some capacity. I think 1 Corinthians 15, 49, maybe look at it this week, jot it down, take a look at it, clearly talks about when we get there, we're going to bear the image of the heavenly, it says. Powerful concept. Now, here's the cool thing. If you look at this. When we stand there, we're going to see him face to face. We're going to be, our, our eyes are, I, and I think of John, the writer of this book, of 1 John. When he sees Jesus in heaven in Revelation chapter 1 verse 17, do you know what he does? This is cool. John is Jesus' best friend here on earth. He is close with Jesus. He knows Jesus on earth like no human being did. When he sees the resurrected Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, do you know what he does? He falls flat on his face as though dead. In some capacity, we're going to see Jesus and we're going to be amazed at what we see. In some capacity, we're going to be like him. And that vision, that heart, that hope, that future looking shapes us today. Now, we get this principle in life, right? Some of you have heard the passage in Proverbs 29 quoted. It says, where there is no vision, what happens to people? They perish. I think we get it in high school. Talk to any young high school student. One of the things high school students are consumed with is what am I going to be when I, or at least the adults are trying to make them be consumed with, is what am I going to be when I grow up? Why is that important to understand future? It shapes what they do today. It shapes what classes they take, what schools they apply to, what extracurricular activities they do. It shapes their future movement. I think of those who say, and I think of myself, I desire to be married one day. Because of that future hope and that future dream, I didn't sit in the couch every night and watch TV. I got up and I placed myself in a position where I could meet a spouse. And then once I met Tanya... I know this isn't so true in the world today because most people just meet and cohabitate and it's all over. We stayed in our personal relationship. We stayed pure until marriage. So because of that future looking forward to the honeymoon, it shaped how I lived during my engagement. I lived pure. I made good choices. I worked out. I dieted. I went to the tanning salon. (laughs) All because I looked forward to something. It shaped what I did today or that day. Talk to people in their jobs. Talk to any one of you. In, if, if I'd interview you as you leave this morning, I'd say, do you love your job? Those who tell me yes, I would guarantee that at the root of their heart somewhere, they understand how their job contributes to something bigger. They can see the future. They can see where their job is taking them. They can see how their job connects to their own personal goals. We get this in the business world. We get it in a church where it's why you hear buzz, this vision words buzzed all over the place in leadership circles. Because what we see in the future and what we really have our hearts set on shapes how we live today. So John is saying, guess what? God is radically in love with you. And you're going to stand with him one day. And you're going to see him. 
Hold on to that hope. Hold on to that vision because it shapes what you do today. So I guess as we close, flip over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to close just by reading a couple verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, if you're not familiar with your Bibles, if you're in 1 John, continue to move towards the front of your Bible. You can eventually hit the book of 2 Corinthians. Find chapter 5. One of the things I love about John, my wife's favorite character in the Bible is Paul. She loves Paul. I don't like Paul. Paul is so wordy. Paul, John, I love John to death. When you read 1 John, it is black and white. It is clear. It is simple. He doesn't take a lot of flowery words to get to where he wants to go. Paul here in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uses a lot of, and I will say it's cool language I want to end with. And he talks about the same principle in a lot of verses, what John just dealt with in a few. So I just want to talk about this. I think it and end with this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, we hurt, we, we, we cry out, Longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Verse 4. For while we are in this tent here on earth, we groan and are burdened. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. So what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Verse 5. Now, it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit. As a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him. And the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Jump down to verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. Therefore, all died. Paul powerfully talks about this groaning that he has to be in heaven and see Jesus face to face. This reality that Jesus died for all of us. Radical love. Not saying I'm dying for you because you got it all together, but I've come to death row to bring you life, to give you the resources. I'm shining the light in on the reality of your heart. Don't hide, he says. Embrace Jesus. Come to the light. And when you do, you join in and enter his family. And I'll be crystal clear, when you enter that family, you cannot be taken out. You are there for good. And the way that you live and the way that you live out your life will just show the reality of that transaction that took place when you entered into that family. God's love is huge. Same as my love for my family compelled me to live in a certain way that I had no concept of until I met Tanya who did not have that. God's love for us compels us to live. If we want to live victoriously and confidently and boldly, it's crucial that we understand and get our heads around and our hearts around the love of God. In the Bible, uh, the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself give us an example of this love. So we want to end our service with this example. I think it's a beautiful picture, communion. Communion is just simply, it's nothing special, nothing spiritual happens when you take that wafer or that juice. It's simply a physical, tangible reminder as you take the wafer, the bread, and you take the, the juice, the wine, It's a reminder of what Jesus has done for you. So we're going to end with communion. I'm going to pray here in a minute where some of the elders and some ushers are going to come forward and we're going to start passing out the bread. When you get your bread, just kind of hold on to it and we'll come back together and kind of take it in unison. I want a couple of reminders. Communion is for those who can sit here this morning and say, I know for certain that I'm a child of God. If you do not know, that's cool that you're honest about it. I'd encourage you to let the stuff pass by you. 
Second thing, communion is for people who are in a proper relationship with God. It's not that you're a child of God, but you know that your heart is good towards him. And you know that your heart is good towards the people that are in your life. If there is some kind of known sin that you cannot make right here this morning, I'd also encourage you to let it pass by. So as I pray, one of the things I want to ask is that you just search your heart. Where are you at? Be honest with yourself. Where are you at? Where are you at with God? How have you embraced the love of God? How are you walking in that family? How's it going with you? And if he brings something to your mind and you can take care of it and deal with it, or, or you know that you can take care of it today or go to the person, you know it's take communion. But take this time seriously as a great reminder of how much God loves and what he has done for us. I'm going to again close by praying um, Ephesians chapter 3. And we're done praying. There's going to be uh, some music playing. And we'll just pass out the bread and then again pull back together. God, thank you so much for Jesus. I think of the heart of the apostle um, Paul when he writes to, to the church at Ephesus. And I just want to... Read those words as a prayer right now. For Bethany, the church in East Earl. God, I pray that out of your glorious riches, you may strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner beings. God, in the deepest part of us, may you strengthen us. God, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that each of us are rooted and established in this love, this radical, unbelievable love. That we may have power together with all your people that are rooted and established in that love. And God, that we may grasp how wide and long and high and deep and just absolutely mind-blowing the love of Christ is. And God, that we may know this love, not just intellectually, but in an experiential way, that we may touch our inner beings, as it says here. We may know this love that surpasses all knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of you. God, that we would understand the truth of Romans chapter 5 and some other places in Scripture, which is while we were yet sinners, you came to this world to die for us. You came because, in essence, we were locked away for life, we were on death row. No hope. You came and you shined the light on our hearts. You revealed that reality to us. Not to condemn us, but to say, I want you to see this reality so that you embrace me. God, my prayer is for every one of us here that we have seen that reality, that we've embraced you. That as we talk about your love and, and, and that light shines in and maybe we see that darkness in our heart, God, my prayer is, is even through this communion time that we don't shelter and hide and push that light away because of the mixed up definition that the world has of love of, well, if someone loves me, they're going to make much of me. And here God is shining this light on me and showing me how messed up I am and sinful. God, will we all allow that light to shine Realizes it's shining because you love us and you're offering us hope and life. You're not here to condemn. God, as John chapter 3 goes on, it says of those who do hide, it says your wrath remains on their head. Sobering thought. And God, I think we see that in this world. People who don't embrace the love of God, we walk around guilty and shame-ridden and, and overwhelmed with your, your condemnation. We don't even know how to put words to that's what it is. So God, would you free us this morning as we take communion to just get our heads and our hearts around in a fresh way, your love, your radical, radical love, and that we'd open our hearts to your reality and embrace the gift of your spirit as we enter your family. And for those of us that have done that in the past, may we just celebrate the reality that we can call you daddy and look to you as a loving father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.